John. I'm Paul. I'm George. And I play the drums. From Pod617.com, the Boston Podcast Network, it's Get Back to the Beatles with Chachi LaPrette and Chachi's co-host, Beatles instructor at Suffolk University, David Galan. So good to be here. This is Get Back to the Beatles on Pod617.com. I want to thank you know, John O'Neill and David and Michael who have put this all together for us. And of course, on my right-hand side, Professor David Gallant, Suffolk University Beatles instructor. And uh, it's good to be here with you, David. Students that you come across today, whole different thing. Some of them, have they all heard about the Beatles or do some come in completely cold? It's very difficult for them to be absolutely unaware uh, of the Beatles just because of, uh, um, I guess in a positive way, how much oxygen they suck up out of the cultural atmosphere. Mm-hmm. So uh, in terms of the Beatles being a heritage and a legacy, it's, um, it's something that they get from their parents, their mm-hmm. grandparents, yes. uh, the media in general. Um, so it's very difficult for them not to know of the Beatles. Some students are already great fans. Mm-hmm. Some students are a little bit skeptical, and yep. they say, well, I don't know, I don't really like them compared to other bands, but um, uh, they forget that they're just not learning about the Beatles. They're learning about the rest of the uh, the life of the times and, and the history and understanding the Beatles' influence on that time. Um, they learn much more than they ever thought uh, that they could or they would. Um, and it also makes them better readers, better writers, better thinkers. Sure. Uh, you know, and, and realizing then that they see the world outside of the classroom through the lens of the Beatles. And they'll come <laughs> up to me and they'll say, oh, I didn't, I just heard this, or I was at the beach and these parents were playing Beatles songs for their kids. And <laughs> they think that I have something to do with that. I think I've mentioned <laughs> that when, uh, when I, I mentioned it when, uh, uh, the Beatles first made it to uh, iTunes, and there was a large billboard on Cambridge Street above us, well, uh, um, a uh, Tedeschi's. And uh, we had students living in a dormitory across the street. And so I had students in my class woke up, and they could see the billboard, and they asked me if I had something to do with that. <laughs> you know, they t- and I said, I wish. And two years ago, well, after the Patriots beat the Seahawks in the Super Bowl, the victory parade was ending at City Hall Plaza, and I was teaching class that afternoon. And uh, I, you could hear, clearly coming across the rooftops, the Beatles cover of the Isley Brothers' Twist and Shout as we were talking about the Please Please Me album. And my students asked me, did I have something to do with that? <laughs> I said, yes, I spoke to the mayor and Mr. Kraft and, you know, ordered everything up. And uh, I say, you see kids? I didn't say kids. I said, folks, this is why we can have a class on the Beatles, because of what is happening right now. And Exactly. There are so many moments like that, I, you know, it's hard and, for me to count. And I've had the pleasure of joining Mr. Gallant in his class a bunch of times over the years, usually once or twice a year, and it's so much fun bringing the collectibles. They, they're really taken by uh, the merchandise that goes along with the Beatles. And we have an interesting guest. This woman has been a dear friend of mine for a bunch of years. She has been on my radio show, Breakfast with the Beatles, on WUMB.org. And uh, she wrote a book that I just adore. I've read it at least twice, and then I go back for references. The book is called Beatleness. It's a great book, and she lives here in the Boston area, and she's done so much research, and she wrote a fantastic book, and her name is Candy Leonard. Candy, welcome to our premiere broadcast on pod617.com. Thank you. Thank you, Chachi. I'm thrilled to be here. It's really a lot, as always, a lot of fun talking about the Beatles, especially with you. Well, it's always fun to have you around your book. And you know how much I love your book. I thought it was fantastic. 
and I've read it several times, and I thought I think it's the great read on the beach. I always would read it on the beach, and uh, so I really enjoyed that. And you know, I'm a first. You say I'm a first generation Beatles fan. I was seven years old when I saw the Beatles on the Ed Sullivan Show, 1964. Uh, without giving any age away, Mr. Galante, are, are you a first-generation Beatles fan? You know, I'm not, and I've and I've had a bone to pick with uh, Dr. Leonard about this over the years. That <laughs> all right, there, pick there, away. There needs to be a follow-up volume oh, for uh, the other generations of Beatles fans. And I will I will mention, of course, that that uh, uh, Candy's book is is one of the standard textbooks for my course. So wow. I spend 14 weeks with her every single uh, every single semester. Little does she know, and she's been to my class and also uh, had uh, uh, presented other talks at the university. Uh, but um, uh, my students uh, certainly know her work, um, and uh, even more accessible since it's been in paperback the last few years too. So it's um, it's a standard text, and it's uh, it provides a great great conversational moments in conversation with our other texts, and also when students are uh, trying to understand just how she went about her research. Certainly I'm gonna let her talk about that more, but um, students now can realize that the Beatles are subject of, of um, what we would call standard scholarly research and the tools that, that uh, Candy used to understand that the Beatles can be a subject like any other subject they're learning uh, if they are a sociology major, psychology major, uh, to exactly know how this was done. So Candy, Yes. Tell us, the, the, so the people who don't know your book, it's a research book where you spoke to people from all different age brackets. Am I, am I correct? Describe what your book is. Well, it basically chronicles or documents both actually the experience that Chachi that you had, that I had growing up with the Beatles in real time in the 60s and watching that magic unfold album after album against the backdrop of all the things that were happening in politics and culture in the world at the time, much of which they started driving by the mid 60s. Mm -hmm. So it really, you know, people who grew up with the Beatles will say, oh, it was just an incredible experience to, to know them when I was growing up and to follow them. And, and over my lifetime, I met so many people who felt blessed, privileged, that it was something very special, that they had that experience. And I thought, you know, it's time to document that experience. So I interviewed people born between 1947 and 1961, which is how I'm defining first generation fan, at least for purposes of this book. But I think that's pretty much it, because even my youngest uh, interviewee, born in 61, tells a wonderful story in the book about how she was four years old. Um, but she remembers hearing eight, uh, not eight days a week, We Can Work It Out, which was, I think it was number one for like three weeks or something. Something like that. And she remembers in detail hearing that song every morning when she was getting ready for, for nursery, for preschool when she was four years old. And of course, wow. you know, if that's a beautiful early memory for somebody to have. But it, it shows that their impact is so deep and long lasting, which of course is why we're all here today. And, you know, David, your, your students, the one, you say, well, how could, you know, they all seem to have some awareness right. of the Beatles. I mean, you'd really have to be uh, living under a rock for 50 years <laughs> to not, I mean, you know, they're everywhere. Um, and you're, you know, when people, like, it sounds like you both probably have the same experience that I have, where people associate you with the Beatles, right? Which is yes. such a wonderful thing, it's right? It's a blessing. Right? So, so even my grandson, who's eight years old, 
who's a little bit opposition. He's a little contrarian about the Beatles now, although he's, he's kind of coming out of that. But every time he sees something out in the world, he thinks of me. Of course. And he says, great? oh, I saw, you know, two kids at my school have Beatles t-shirts. So there, there's really something so uh, sweet about that. I mean, I don't know how else to explain it. You know, but, um, but getting back to the book, so I felt I needed to document this experience. And if not me, who? Because I was a little girl fan growing up, listening to, I was seven and a half when I watched Ed Sullivan. Then I, you know, went to school, blah, 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 became a sociologist. And so I applied that sociology lens to this phenomenon in a way that had not been done. And also that a lot of the, I would say, 99% of Beatles scholarship although this is changing, um, is by men. Mm-hmm. So, which I always found kind of ironic if you think about it, because the thing, the especially looking at the fan perspective, it was, you know, the female fan was a very important part of the story. I mean, all the fans were, but the, the fact that, that there was no, no books about the fan experience and that it was all very much a male perspective, I thought, well, this, I need to write this book. So I did. Well, I, I do want to say it's very hard with all the books about the Beatles out there to find something that hasn't been covered. And you have mined something that I've never read before, and I found it very interesting. And let's talk about girls at a Beatles concert and how different it was for men. Me, I was seven years old living in Cambridge. I couldn't, I I did not get to see the Beatles at Suffolk Downs. I don't think Mr. Gallant has seen the Beatles either. No. But (laughs) it's a different experience for boys than for girls. Right, right. Amongst the girls that you've interviewed, what, what did you find interesting? What happens to them when they're at a show? For instance, I have a friend, a very uh, you know, well-known guy, who saw the Beatles in Forest Hills. Mm-hmm. He was 16. He took a girl. He left her there because the music, or the screaming was too loud. <laughs> and I tease him about it when I see him. And I've said it on the radio show before. And so it was different for boys than girls. It was different for boys. I mean, very much so, for lots of reasons. I mean, boys would look at the Beatles and say, I want to do that. That looks like a lot of fun. I want to play the guitar. I want to be in a band. I want to have that kind of camaraderie. And, and so they could, boys could identify them with them and see them as role models in a way that girls obviously could not. For the girls, it was about fantasizing, about being with them, meeting them. And, of course, the screaming at the concerts was a... Another sort of gender difference. Uh, boys, for the most part, did not scream. The girls did, and I, you know, they were excited to be there. They could not contain themselves, and they were to be at a Beatles show was to be part of the most important thing that was going on in the world from the perspective of that young person. That's so, true. So here you are, part of this thing, and the. Exhilaration, I, I, you know, just I think the screams came from there. Also, I think that the, you know, it was very, you know, we have, we have to remember this was a very different era where people, public behavior was very different than it is now. People got dressed up to go to shows. I mean, the women that I interviewed talked about, you know, they had some of them were wearing white gloves when they went to these shows, and <laughs> and you know they had special outfits, and so to be, so it was a very, con, con, you know, conformist. Con, Find you know think of the early episodes of Mad Men. I mean that was what the culture was like. Okay, so these girls get to go to a Beatles show and they're in a group of friends and they're just thrilled to be there. So they're screaming and there were no other places where girls could behave like that. It was it was a place to misbehave with impunity, scream, be wild, and demonstrate you know express your your love for the Beatles and and 
you were part of this amazing thing if you were at a Beatles show. Hi, I'm Jami DePerel. You may remember me from, well, I guess a lot of things on Boston Radio, but I am in the podcast biz now. I'm hoping you can tune into my new show called The Meter is Running. New episodes posted regularly on pod617.com, the Boston Podcast Network. And you know what? Lucky me, I get a co-host. I'm working with my good friend Shira Springer of the Boston Globe and WBUR. Well, John, it is great to be here. There are a lot of stories we don't get to tell in print and radio, and now we can do that here. And you know what, Shira? Consider yourself charmed. Yes, indeed. Our <laughs> guests will include some real big shots in sports, politics, business. You name it, we have it. We'll also have a lot of fun along the way. Make sure to check for the latest episode on pod617.com. Listen up, Boston, and listen to The Meter is Running on the Boston Podcast Network. From pod617.com, the Boston Podcast Network. You're listening to Get Back to the Beatles with Chachi LaPrette. Candy, I tell you, it's still very, very shocking for my students to see the footage and even to uh, both read your analyses as well as, uh, I guess, nowadays, a a fairly well-known article uh, headed by Barbara Ehrenreich. Right, I quote that article uh, in the book. It's it's out there, it's in anthologies, and it's, it's quite a good piece where it talks about the screaming as a way of its... It, it's articulate, inarticulate expression, meaning that there's no words, there's no vocabulary right. yet to talk about it. But the excitement is there, but there's no, as we would say about Hamlet, there's no objective correlative. You don't have words to express right. it, but it needs to come out. And it's, it's interesting the way you point out this sort of disjuncture between the way the girls look, but how they're behaving. Mm-hmm. And it takes only another year or two when they're jumping over barricades at Shea Stadium. Right. And they're not wearing the Peter Pan collars anymore. So part of that rapid rate of change, is not just in the Beatles look, but is also noted in the, in, the, in the girls' behavior and how pretty soon boys get it on that other level. But the girls were ahead of them at that point, much like young women mature faster than young men anyway. Uh, but uh, it's, a, it's sort of a moment that my students still quite are shocked by that. By the just screaming. By the screaming. And uh, by the, you know, the knowledge of, of the stress incontinence that would go with it as <laughs> right. well. Right. Uh, well, you know, we shouldn't forget screaming for pop stars, for, for singers, it was not new with the Beatles. It actually started with Franz Liszt. In the what, what 1800s? Sure, um, Lithuania. Lithuania, yeah. and then of course um, uh, Frank Sinatra, Valentino, Valentino, Nijinsky. Elvis Presley. <laughs> right. So there is a history for it, but the the it manifested very differently with the Beatles for a number of reasons. First of all, and and I think this is true when you think talking about the Beatles phenomenon and what made it a singular event. The size of the demographic, the size of the baby boom generation made it, it it amplified the whole thing. It made it bigger than it would have been. And not only here, but internationally. The post-war baby boom was a, you know, basically an international thing that happened. So you have this huge population of people of a fan, potential fan base that was larger than it was for Elvis or Sinatra or, or any of these other. Plus the communications technology was different. The, you know, the um, merchandise. You know, there's so many things about it had sort of based on things in the past, but bigger. Well, the, the, bigger. Ma- the math 
mathematics of the idolization is automatically increased by a factor of four. Exactly. Because there were four of them. And you could pick a favorite. <laughs> you know, you either true. liked Elvis or you didn't. You liked Frank right. Sinatra or you didn't. Right. But you could pick your favorite Beatle. Right. Yes. right? Yes. So there was there was four times the excitement. All else, I mean, just. If, if for that reason only, it was four times more interesting than Elvis. So from your research, who was the most popular Beatle? <laughs> was it Ringo? Well, I think in the early, you know, I mean, in the earliest, you know, when they first came around, I think Ringo was the most popular. He comes from a large family. Oh. Yeah, he was. I think, I think some of the, um, you know, Ringo sort of looked like he needed attention, right? Because he was like in the back and, and, you know, you couldn't quite see him as clearly as the others. And the other thing, you can see this if you're watching, when you watch the old footage, that there's this incredible communication, nonverbal communication that happens between the three of them in the front, as musicians do, right? Yes. But they're, they're fun, having fun, they're, you know, kind of joking around with each other. He was kind of left out of that because he was in the back. So I think that contributed to this feeling of, oh, poor Ringo, you know, the puppy dog. Um, I think that's why he said uh, famously that, uh, you know, uh, uh, Paul got the teeny boppers, George the mystics, John the intellectuals, and he got the grandmas and babies, right? <laughs> the, Children, right that that right. caring need. Well, I, I'm going, I have actually gone through a lot of um, phases with, you know, people always ask me, who's your favorite Beatle? Which is a question I'm sort of frankly sick of. But I will say that I have evolved on this. And so I was one of the seven-year-olds who liked Ringo. In fact, when I had the opportunity to get a Remco doll, you know, I chose Ringo, okay? Sadly, I don't have that doll anymore, but okay, so I was seven, eight, okay. So then at some point I became, uh, I was a Paul, you know, Paul was my favorite. And I think that corresponded with my going into puberty because, oh my God, he's so gorgeous and all that. Then, um, as kind of a rebellious teen, I was, it was John, John, John. And for the most of my life, I would say John was my favorite Beatle. However, I have since, in the past year and a half, now I say George. Wow. So you and I started out the same, because when I saw the Beatles, I immediately was drawn to Ringo. I liked the fact that he was on a riser. It sounded like, he, and he looked like he was having a lot more fun. <laughs> and um, so I immediately loved Ringo. I wanted to play drums, and I did, and I joined bands, blah, blah, blah. But a few years after that, I began to uh, be drawn to George. I saw him as being someone who was able to survive and thrive in the shadow of John and Paul. Mm -hmm. And he learned how to write music as they went, uh, while John and, and George, George, John and Paul were certainly uh, ahead of George in that regard. So. I was drawn to George because he was able to be in the shadow of two of the greatest songwriters and then emerge as a great songwriter himself. Yeah, and himself. still thrive in that yes. environment. Yeah. You know, it's funny, I, uh, when I make lists of my favorite Beatles songs, there are a disproportionate number of George songs on my short list because, I mean, obviously the, the bulk of the songs were Lyndon McCartney, but one of my all-time favorite songs, Think For Yourself. Love that song. You know, that to me is, is a mantra for me. Like, I just love it. And and other, within you, without you. Um, you know, when Sgt. Pepper came out, a lot of fans didn't know what to make of within you, without you. Yes. Um, I, I listen to it now, and I it's just, it's brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. If, if, if Candy thinks she's tired of the question of who's your favorite <laughs> Beatle, uh, I, I put myself in front of that runaway train because it's it's one of the final short paper assignments that I give my students. Uh, who is your favorite Beatle and of course and why? And because why? They, right. they, they've spent a semester with them and listened to the music and they've and they've they've seen them on clips in the in the Beatles anthology. 
and so they have to explain it. And, and in many ways, uh, this past week, uh, we went over that assignment again. It's due on Tuesday, so I, I have to grade usually around 25 of those every semester. Mm -hmm. And they, they chafe against it. Um, some would say, well, you're asking me to pick my favorite child. And, and I say, well, you don't have children yet. What do you do? And, uh, or, you know, how do we do that? If you told us that Brian Epstein said that John was the mind and Paul the heart and George the soul and Ringo the flesh and blood, then how can you have one without the others? I said, I'm not telling you to only take one home with you. It's not that bit. Right. Um, but I also asked them, as we talked about sort of identification in the communication excellence of the Beatles or their competence about it is which one do you find an accord with which one strikes a balance with maybe your personality um so and i i don't want them to run to google to take a which beetle are you test <laughs> which there are plenty out there uh so um i, I don't really tire of that assignment but, but they'll, well, they'll ask me well <laughs> that's a great assignment because it really gets them to think about the differences between them i mean people used to my response to that question used to be i don't have a favorite beetle because by definition you can't pull out one there it's like a square with four corners or northeast west south whatever like they're a hole you know you can't but, you know, that's kind of a cheeky sort of response. People yes. want to get into a conversation about who's your favorite Beatles. So, well, uh, yeah. But I have come around to George. When I was writing the book, it occurred to me very clearly. I mean, I kind of always knew it, but it became very apparent that I think that George and John brought the weirdness. George and John brought the stuff that in many ways, and this is not to denigrate Ringo or, Paul, Ringo or Paul in any way, but George and John brought what I just... I can't go into all of it right now, but my sense is that they brought the weirdness. Yes. They brought the thing that kind of made it another kind of thing, mm -hmm. right? I mean, yeah. Paul is, a, you know, again, not taking anything away from them. So, I, you know, there was some, and, and it was that stuff that they brought that made, that added, for me, the mystery, the intrigue, the intellectual components, the, the, I don't know. I mean, it, it, so much about it is very challenging to describe. So, you know? let me ask you, Candy, before you wrote the book and after you wrote the book, <laughs> how has your life changed? Are oh you happy God. you wrote it? Because now you're, you're kind of like, like you wrote a, a book about Star Trek, now you're in the conventions. Right. So you wanted, you, you appear at different Beatle conventions. You're you obviously do. here on our program right now. And uh, so what is life like now? Are you happy that you wrote the book on the Beatles? Has that elevated your life? Are you going to write another one? Uh, uh, a lot of questions. I am very happy I wrote the book. I'm very proud of it. Um, nobody else had done it, and nobody else can do it. So right. I feel a great, I'm very proud of it. Um, I actually did not think about how my life would be after the book. I was just so, you know, because it had been in my head to write it for many, many years, and I finally did it, and I just wanted to get it out there and promote it, and I really didn't think much about how my life would change after. Uh, it's, you know, I, it's hard to, I mean, I definitely don't regret writing it. I often wonder what I'd be doing now had I not written it, because right. I was doing other kinds of work. I was doing market research. I was doing... Uh, you know, work that drew on the same skill set reflected in the book, which is, you know, in-depth interviewing, analysis, and sort of, culture, you know, analysis of cultural issues and things. So, 
I, I don't know how my life would be if I hadn't written it. I'm, I'm glad I did. I. Well, you certainly wouldn't have met David. And I exactly. Yeah, I'm, and I'm, all the I'm great people, he, everybody <laughs> here, who's here too. today. I mean, I love the book. You know, one of the things that I hadn't, I haven't been um, promoting it quite as much in the past year and a half or so, and I miss being around the community of Beatle fans. I mean, that was an unexpected sort of treat was that I was suddenly part of this community of Beatle fans, Beatle scholars, musicians. That was very, that was very nice. And, uh, you know, we all have this disease, you know. Mm-hmm. Well, um, I think much like Bruce Spizer and his series of books, I think there's a series there of your research. I mean, you've only covered from, what, 57 to 61 years the people were born? Ages, yeah. Ages. So you think I should do a second generation? I think you need to. Well, I mean, thank you, Chachi. <laughs> this is all I've been saying. I'm actually part of the tail end if you went beyond 61 just a little bit. And, and all I remember, my first musical memories, was, was hearing Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds because my older siblings were playing Sgt. Pepper, and I was four years old when that came out. Right. But I, I do think that what Candy's come to appreciate is in this Beatle community, um, this is another way of gathering the subtitle of her book, The Fan's Perspective. Mm-hmm. And that's really what is the outstanding feature of the, uh, of the text, that it, uh, it really is important to have understood uh, uh, Beatles scholarship uh, from the ground up, because in the past, not only had it just been written by men, but also whether they are uh, scholars or academics or journalists, uh, it seems to have been coming from those who are on the inside, it's, the studio people, as opposed to the Vox Populi, as we it's say. It's still often true. Like, there'll be a right. podcast looking at the Beatles and drugs, let's say, or a book that just came out, I think, about Beatles and drugs. And it's it's never looking... I mean, it's very rare to have the fan perspective, the, or what we... Now, the mm-hmm. end user. In other mm-hmm. words, the Beatles and drugs, well, was there... You know, there's a story about fans in that, too. And, uh, or, you know, different aspects of... of you know, so people sort of slice and dice the phenomena. I'm going to look at this piece, I'm going to look at this piece. But they often overlook uh, what that was like for the kids sitting at home, staring at that square mm-hmm. of cardboard and mm-hmm. being transformed by it. Yeah. You know? Well, listen, we'd like to have you back for another show because we could go on for hours with Candy. <laughs> Her book is filled with so much great content, interesting, different perspectives, and hearing straight from fans like us. Uh, that it's such a, a great book. Beetleness, you can go to Beetleness.com. Right. Candy Leonard is the author. It's available and, on Amazon and anywhere books are sold. Anywhere it, books are sold. Including and I, the Suffolk University Bookstore. Oh. That's right, and it's in paperback now, and it's it's really a fantastic book. I still enjoy it to this day. We want to thank you, Candy Leonard, well, thank author you. of Beetleness. Thanks for coming on Get Back to the Beatles today. Thank you. Okay, thanks. Great. Make sure to check for the latest episode of Get Back to the Beatles with Chachi LaPrette at pod617.com, the Boston Podcast Network. Hi, I'm Marjorie Claproon's brother, John. And I'm Margie's nephew, Michael. And I'm Margie's nephew, Dave. And I'm Margie's nephew, Jonas. We're here with a special plea today. There's someone who needs your help. The matter is urgent. And it gets worse every day. Marjorie Claproon suffers from A.C.S. Attention craving syndrome. Every minute of every day. She is desperately trying to get everyone's attention. But you can help. Just listen to her podcast. Margie Claproot saves the world. New episodes posted regularly. At pod617.com, the Boston Podcast Network. Please listen. We implore you. She needs your attention. And then maybe she'll leave us the alone. Please. 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 Please listen. Politics, family, and fun. 
Margie Claprood saves the world. At pod617.com. The Boston Podcast Network. Ha 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 ha!